the move from there on was to a village called Castelfrontano. Um, and it was the winter headquarters for the German line on that side. Welcome to Courage and Valour, the New Zealanders in the Italian campaign of World War II. Episode 3, Castle Fontano and Orzonia. The Courage and Valour podcast is the story of ordinary New Zealanders who served and fought to liberate Italy from fascist and Nazi rule during World War II. In our last episode, the soldiers of the 2nd New Zealand Division had crossed the Sangro River in November 1943 and taken the villages on the river's northern banks. Now they were to move on towards the German Winterline headquarters in the town of Castle Fontano, potentially stepping into the hornet's nest. Spearheading the advance was 24 Battalion. Colin Murray and Harry Hopping were there. We got up to uh, Castle Fontano. There was a large building on the outside. We were, uh, our 16th platoon was in the lead. We were next. Our 16th platoon was uh, commanded by a chap named Pat Kane. He later in life became headmaster of the Tikawiti High School. Um, and uh, the Germans had uh, this, this big building on the outside. It was an uh, ex-hotel, I think. Um, it had been converted into their headquarters for the, the eastern side for the German defence. Um, and um, the hill going up to it, they'd felled all the olive trees and they'd pulled them all into a row around the side of the hill, a bit like a windrow in a, but of course, you know, 10 or 20 foot high. Um, and they'd threaded barbed wire through all of them and so on. So 16 was just, uh, had just managed to scramble through that and when we arrived and uh, I tell you what, I went through that, <laughs> I didn't give a damn. I went through that uh, that hedge of trees with wire and so on, um, and I didn't care whether I got the, uh, whether I got ripped with the barbed wire or my clothes, my battle dress or what. But anyhow, we got through safely, all of us. And uh, uh, we caught them. It was fairly early in the morning, and we actually caught the Germans by surprise. They had uh, dug uh, great deep trenches around the outside um, and they had uh, had sleeping quarters and all underground and it was all supported with uh, railway sleepers that they'd uh, pinched out of railways and timber they could find from anywhere. So we, we had a lot of them uh, sort of uh, trapped down, uh, down below, we'd taken, I suppose, uh, a lot of prisoners. Oh, quite a lot of prisoners. Don't you think? Don't you think the Germans there weren't experienced? No, they, weren't they, they, they were poor troops, poor I would troops. imagine, yeah, they were. Um, because probably, uh, being um, headquarters, they would perhaps have. Um, Older troops there, and the better troops would be further out. Yeah. 
you know, there might have even been you know, chaps that have been wounded previously or whatever. Anyhow, they they didn't put up a lot of, posi of opposition. Not, opposition yeah. not with us, at any rate, although 16 had uh, several killed. Uh, one of them uh, almost threw his life away and uh, chased after them as they were treating back to the village and one of them turned around and, and shot him. Um, however, um, we captured this building and um, I remember our platoon, we went up to the second story and uh, looking out one of the windows, uh, or I suppose it'd be a good 800 yards away, um, we could see a whole lot of Germans. There was a line of their trucks and a whole lot of troops, German troops piling into these trucks. Take and of off. course, they, panic had set in and they were retreating. Um, and so it was a perfect shot for a Bren gun because the trucks were all uh, facing away from us and the back of them and all these men in there. So uh, my section, I said, get the Bren gun out of the and give it to them, you see. And you know, the Bren gun wouldn't fire. <laughs> it's the right? one time that we couldn't get it to fire. And I thought I, in fact, I could strip a Bren gun and put yeah. it together blindfold, which we practiced many times. Um, and I did that and put it together again and it wouldn't, still wouldn't fire. Um, just why that happened, I, I think possibly it was so cold that um, all it wanted probably was a squirt of oil <laughs> and it might have been away. Anyhow, it probably saved a lot of Germans yeah, from, no, right. from getting bold. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, for the rest of the day, the Germans, of course, were still occupying the village. Um, and they turned everything on onto this building. Um, and uh, I tell you what, by the end of the day, it was probably a four-storey building. Uh, by the end of the day, um, there was only one storey left. We marched forward to Kessel Paterno and um, we spent the night in a house there. Anyhow, next morning, the attack was on. We were parked just by a road. Across the road, there was barbed wire on a bank. Called the barbed wire, run up a hill, and the track ran right around to the left. They said, Right, our number one section, and that is me. Through the shell that blasted a hole through the, the wire. Up the hill. So we scrambled through this wire, spread out. We got about halfway up the hill. And Doug Coates dropped down. There's a joker sitting on, the, on his parapet having his breakfast up there. You can see him quite plain. And we walked straight in bed. No, no cover at all. Doug Coates dropped down and opened fire. And you know what happened after that, don't you? All hell let loose. So I just walked over where the eye tires had your plough field, in the middle of the field was a bit of a ditch. And all I had was a pistol and a two-inch mortar. I didn't have a gun or any kind, just a pistol. So I took one nose dive into that groove in the ground. 
and of course the shell fire and the machine gun fire. So I stayed there all day and it snowed. It snowed that day and I went to sleep and they tried to shell me and I got spanned air bullets through my pack in the back and I got shrapnel in the back. So I woke up that night and I was frozen stiff. We needed to sleep, that's what it was. So I got up and staggered around and I thought, well, I was there on my own, I thought, I'll stagger back to this house. Imagine I got back to the house where I come from. And I said, well, I couldn't care less whether it was German or who was in it. Nobody in it. There's a big mattress there. So I just fell over and behind, pulled the mattress on top of me. Next morning I get up, look out. Hello. He's some of our boys brewing up just down the road. And it suited me fine. So I got out and staggered down there and gave me a cup of coffee. And he said, you've been wounded garments away? And I said, yes. And I said, oh, well, we'd better take you out. So I went back. A long march. And boy, were they shelling the place. So, um, yeah, we occupied this house. Um, our leading platoon had uh, one man who was actually recommended for the Victoria Cross there, but it, it never came to anything. Um, and we took a lot of prisoners. They had, uh, they had built underground uh, accommodation and they had bunks and, oh, it was a great setup. So we spent the, the next two days in the building but I was given the job of uh, doing something with all these prisoners. There's about uh, oh, a dozen or 15 of them, I suppose. So uh, I, uh, I didn't, you know, I was new to the game. By that time, of course, my section leader had been killed but, uh, and he eventually died. Um, yeah, I had, uh, I suppose it was lack of experience at that time. Um, all these prisoners were, not long after we captured the place, they were a, a nuisance because you needed someone to guard them. That's right, they were. So I, uh, I sent them, I put a man in charge and, and sent them back. And there was a road away down, a sort of a sunken road that, uh, that led away back down towards the Sangro River. So uh, this chap started off, uh, I suppose there must have, he must have had at least 10 prisoners, um, perhaps more. And uh, he started off and, and um, the Germans got onto them with uh, some mortars, or it might have even been our own guys, because uh, seeing the Germans moving, it's quite likely they were. Uh, and the, the man that I'd sent to guard them uh, he got hit himself and uh, they were quite near this sunken road and, and all the Germans hopped over the bank. They didn't give a darn about helping the man, but they hopped over the bank and uh, they took off back towards the village <coughs> and uh, uh, we could just see their heads bobbing along and we, we gave them all we had, but uh, I don't know whether we hit anyone or not. But um, anyhow, uh, 
Yeah, at the end of the day, there wasn't much of the building left, and uh, we'd lost one uh, one chap. The wall fell on him, and uh, uh, he was killed. Um, and uh, of course, you know, you do an attack like that, and uh, you're hungry. Uh, there's no way that you're going to get any food or, or more water or anything until after dark. And even then, uh, the carrying parties have got to find you. They've, they've all got to be carried in by hand, all that stuff, and extra ammo and so on. So you go through periods of, uh, of getting darn hungry. And uh, we'd never really dried out from uh, two crossings of the river. <coughs> that was just melting snow um, and of course never any change of clothes or anything um, so it was just body heat to, and it was cold, cold wet weather hairy yeah. yeah. wet my slit trench had, had a big uh, uh, route across one end and this trench filled about four inches of water in the bottom so <coughs> I could actually sit on the on this route across and sleep sitting up. <laughs> yeah, we needed to be young, eh, Harry? That's right. Yeah. My slip trench, I had a slip trench and I had a, had a little uh, piece that I dug out that I could lie on about halfway up. <laughs> and, but the water was down there and I was up here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no, the ground sheets uh, were, uh, they were some help, but they, were. Uh, they, but, they certainly weren't. But it was soon after that that, uh, that we made the attack from that yes, building yeah. up, up into the yeah. up into the town itself. That's right. But they, the Germans didn't seem to stay there very long, did they? No, they retreated, they to retreated through there, which, which wasn't far away. No, uh, it wasn't too far. We, we didn't go across with the main body. We took up a position on the water on the edge of the river, and we were firing across. Uh, the river was nearly uh, a kilometre wide, with like a South Island river with channels, sandbanks, channels, sandbanks, and the, on the other side it rose up gradually to uh, Castle Fontano, a hilltop town, and uh, there were odd farmhouses, nothing much else, and uh, so. We got our ammunition and, and built up the stocks and dug our mortar pits on the on the river bank on the south side of the river and that <laughs> would be the western side I suppose and <coughs> we uh, supported our troops. Um, uh, there and apparently I haven't been any complaints so far so. Uh, the engineers have been putting up uh, a barley bridge on the left flank of ours. That'll be the northern flank, and uh, that struck a lot of trouble. For example, I was uh, selected to help carry rations across, following the troops. We had sandbags with tucker and stuff in them, and ammunition. We were pretty heavily late. We got down to this bloody uh, Bailey Bridge. You couldn't use it, and it was subject to frequent stonks and all the vicious things from there. There wasn't much you could do if you were up in the bloody uh, uh, 
the structure of a bridge is nowhere much to hide and uh, it might be 20 feet from the ground. And so we went underneath it and up the other side and there was shell holes everywhere. And they, they were using us as ammunition carriers. I thought I was going to fall in. We, um, we carried some ammunition in front of us in a harness, uh, boxes of ammunition up in front and then on the back. And going across the Sangaree River, they had put a piece of wire across the river to hang on to while you trudged across. Uh, I think it would be about one twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the morning when we walked across. Uh, and if you fell in, you would never get up. Uh, and one of the things I saw in the moonlight was five bodies wrapped in blankets when we were just approaching and we thought, oh shit, it'd been too rough to even get them out. And, and we had to go through there and go forward for about a thousand metres, I suppose, and uh, we worried a lot about coming back. And nothing happened. Um, after a few days, they detected a, <coughs> a German observation post in a steeple in a church up on a, um, it was a pretty steep hill with forestry around it and, and it would have been a difficult thing to have uh, captured or attacked and uh, so they sort of ignored it and then they thought well for a bloke to be able to see that bridge he's got to be up high and uh, and he was doing a pretty good job of it <laughs> so they uh, got um, tanks to shoot the spire over it. <laughs> we went on through a place called Casual Pantano and we had lunch there and we went on down the hill and up a long slope and going up that slope we went across a German um, dump in a cave. Well it was in a covered over place. I don't know how it come we come to find it and there was bread in there wrapped up in cellophane the bread was about that big long just like a brick with a round top and it was date stamped on it 1936 and it was hard as a rock but you cut the outside off it and the inside bread was quite good and also going up there I picked up a German water bottle full of vermouth and I carried that bottle for a long, long time before I got the courage to bring, have a sip of it because I thought it might have been there dropped purposely for booby-trapped or poisoned. And vermouth was a very good Italian wine. Yeah, the uh, blokes fought their way up to the town and the enemy uh, obliged by getting out of it and moving over to Orsonia and Ortonia I suppose, which was nearer the coast. The Germans held a front line that stretched from Ortona near the Adriatic coast to Orsonia inland near the mountains. The 8th Army had to break through this defensive line. While the British, Canadians and Indians concentrated on the Ortona end, New Zealand was given the task of trying to take Orsonia, which was no easy task. They would have come up against not just formidable German defences, including tanks and the first time they'd seen flamethrowers used against them, but Mother Nature was throwing everything at them too, in the form of a prolonged blizzard snowstorm. Um... So we captured Castelfontano and then the Germans moved back to a place called Orsona 
uh, and there was only one road into that. The winter came on and then we bought a, a Sonia and uh, they had to spend the winter around there. And anyway, we got up to Castleton Down and had a little bit of a lull there before we we sent a company into this uh, to attack this uh, Orsonia. We shipped it onto a place on a ridge leading into a place called Osogna, but we used to call it Osonia. And we was in a, some of us were dug in, we just dug in, I was dug in on a forward slope and I couldn't get down far enough with my trench because of the bloody pipe underneath the rock. And I was crouched down in this damn thing. And daylight in the morning, one of the other patrols come, other company patrols come through our lines. And of course we was in full view of dairy. And they shell hell out of us for five hours. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again and my bloody knees seized up. And uh, when one of the chaps, he slit, he'd got out of his slit trench to go into the house for some reason and while I was in his slit trench a shell came over and landed in it but it didn't explode. And uh, then we shifted up to another house close to the approach to this town called Asagna. That was the sharp end and uh, and because uh, that's the main road right across down to, to Ravana. Canadians were fighting down there, they took all that. Anyway, uh, uh, we were dug the way we do. Right? I did the closest I had, about 150 yards anybody. And I was in the city there and Christ, when I went off watching that, I don't think I slept. I was always, because old Jerry, he was niggling at us all the time. He was niggling at us all the time. And uh, when he, because he had his good troops there, no matter where we went, they'd turn up the paratroopers. And they were the best. It's a funny thing. They're not supposed to know anything, but wherever we went, they turned up. And uh, he had, we had the paratroopers against us there. But uh, <clears throat> I rated it as one of the toughest places that we fought in because we we had come from the desert and we got to this place and we had mud and rain and more mud and uh, in the mortars you dig mortar pits that are about four feet deep and about seven feet in diameter and we dug 27 of them in three days uh, in the mud. Uh, well, we were facing Orsonia, which was facing north, and the ground fell away until um, the next hilltop, which was Orsonia. Fortunately for us, when it came to the attack on Orsona, um, uh, we were to reserve. And... Um, we weren't. We, we were. We weren't. Weren't you? No. <laughs> well, we were. B Company. D Company, we'd taken a bit of a pounding. Yeah. At that stage, I think every platoon in D Company was commanded by a sergeant. Yeah. We'd lost all our officers, had killed or wounded. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were a reserve, and it, when you're in the reserve, of course, you, you're just right behind the, the front guys, That's right. uh, the leading troops. 
and uh, you do quite a bit of lying down um, or taking cover if it's possible um, and you get a devil of a lot of shell and mortar fire because uh, the enemy knows jolly well if there's attack coming in there's all sorts of things in behind tanks and and uh, and more troops and that sort of thing so as well as combating the Harry and Co here in front, they give us behind there. Yeah, that's right. And I got partly buried that night with a bank falling out. I'd taken refuge in a, a gutter beside this uh, road, such as it was, and a uh, uh, shell landed on the bank yeah. just above me and uh, it caved over the top of me, but luckily my head was out. So. Um, yeah. So, as far as the attack on Corsona, uh, we didn't see any Germans at all, D Company. Before, actually, before we went into Corsona, it was bombed, wasn't it? Yeah. And actually, they bombed, uh, bombed it before we went in. It was about, uh, I think there was about a three or four days' stay between Castle Fontana and the time we took, went into yeah, Corsona. Yeah, it wasn't long. It wasn't long. Actually, after. Uh, uh, Castle Fontana was taken. Uh, we went to, went down through past the old uh, brickworks there. Yeah. Went, yeah. Uh, we were actually walking. It was what was the distance between Castle Fontana and Sonia? About uh, ten miles. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. If that. If that. Yeah. Not very far. And so we marched there. We had an attack on on uh, Sonia. We had to. Uh, B Company was one of the of the 24th Battalion was the main one going into Sodia. We had to go up this hill, and into the, we got into the town, and the Germans uh, uh, really had a go at so it. There they brought a tank down, and uh, we fought there. Lost a few men, a few were captured, and uh, they chased us out of back out of uh, Sodia. And Sonia was never taken. Sonia was never ever taken. It was a nasty place. A nasty uh, place. It was narrow, uh, only a narrow, narrow road ridge yeah, going right. in, and, uh, and and they had it absolutely taped. Taped uh, all the way. Yeah, but we got right into Sonia. Yeah, we got right into right into the town, right into town. Yeah, and uh, we were making headway until the, they brought the tank in, and, and yeah. uh, that's what stopped us. Yeah, if they bring in tanks and you haven't got tank support. We haven't got, yeah, we didn't have yeah, tank support. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I didn't, we didn't have any tank support there at all. No, no. We didn't at uh, Castle Fontana, Castle Fontana no. or, or the Sangrove. Uh, well, because the river, they couldn't get, uh, get that through. across. But. We eventually got into a house there. Uh, there between, just down past the old brickworks. Oh, yeah, elsewhere. I got sent out the brickworks, and you've probably heard me tell you about the brickworks of the Mad Mile of Rosonia. There's a stretch of road, about, I don't know whether it's a mile or not, but it was a Mad Mile because it was under fire all the time. You had to go like the clappers to get up and down it. And I had no idea why I was sent up there, but I went up and broke the front spring on my jeep. So what do I do now? So it's late in the afternoon, there's no mechanic shop handy, you just <laughs> and I got a brick, jammed it between the 
axle of the chassis. Flogged about half a mile of some bloke's signal wire and went around and around. And then I set, set back to get back down the mad mile. And you just simply went like the clappers. And they, whether I got shot at, I don't know. But I got back. <laughs> we ran into a winter line. We'd never, never struck one of those. The Germans had forced labour and they'd done all sorts of bloody things to fortify the village and and it was impregnable really. And we were, well, country got up there and bumped, bumped into this lot and they, they, they were, it was bloody rough. And uh, uh, we didn't know what it was all about. Ah, oh, and. <clears throat> Anyway, after we'd moved in there, we moved round to Maori Ridge, uh, and we were facing Orsonia from a different angle, and uh, the Maoris were on our right, and that called for some uh, mortar support. They said, we're going to go and do an attack and tomorrow night. And, and when we attacked, like this, you're there, you'll be able to drop bombs right in front of us, uh, right along the front held by the enemy. And uh, when it actually happened, we fired, we'd, they called for us to fire, and we did. And they were very enthusiastic. Oh, beauty man, you're killing the bar ten at a time. Oh, those bloody bodies and bloody spare limbs and life. all this bullshit, you know. And, uh, oh, it sounded bloody horrendous. We didn't know. We, we were firing bombs into the dark but, uh, at a, at, uh, on compass um, readings. And, uh, and that when we first got there into that Maori Ridge place, we had an old house with no roof and windows were blown in. And we had walls around us and there was snow. It was pretty thick. And uh, we just dropped our gear, and I went out to get. Uh, I went out to have a crap, and I went over by a haystack, and I'm crouched down there, and I looked down, and I saw a wire. My foot was actually under the wire, and I looked about six feet away. I saw these three prongs sticking up. That was. Uh, from an S mine, you stand on that. It was about as big as a, it's in a baked beans, you know, the 400 uh, rams job. And these three prongs, if you stood on it, 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 it depressed, and the detonator set off a, uh, a fuse, which was a four second one. Well, in military gear, you can't run 14 yards and, uh, you heard a click and you knew that something had happened. One bloke we heard of, a Scotchman, uh, he, he yelled out to his mates, set off an S mine, go for your lives. And he just sta stood there and, st and stayed uh, and stood on the thing. And uh, it took off his leg, but he lived. I think he got a decoration for it. It was a pretty hard way to be decorated. And uh, <clears throat> there was a lot of these kind of mines. Uh, well, I looked down at it. So I just moved it out of the way. 
And uh, I, uh, I went back to the house and the Maoris were still there. And uh, I told them about it, so they went over and they had a bit of signal wire and they just attached it to that wire and got round a couple of bends <laughs> and threw it down a big steep bank. Yeah, they, yeah. And so we looked for more and I found a couple more, but it was a cunning one. See, troops always go for uh, hay, uh, stacks to get a bit of hay to soften on what they're sleeping on. We didn't carry mattresses with us, and uh, we were quite hardened to sleeping on the bare ground and from the desert. And even on the troop ship, you slept on the on the deck in in, in the ocean when it started to warm up. We our our bunks were two decks below water level and they said to us well you can sleep on deck as long as you keep bloody keep the deck spotless and uh, so we went up there and the floor sleeping on the deck was bloody hard for about three nights and then it was nothing but now before that night um, I was with my bloody rangefinder and some trying to find something to do and <clears throat> most of the platoon had moved up to be within range of the enemy, and we we were was, were in range where we were. But uh, they they had being closer, they could engage more targets. And uh, our blokes were on the side of a bloody hill, and there was a bit of a cutter, and it was sort of level above. And there was a fold down there, dropped about 20 feet, and it went in about 10 feet, and then there was a tunnel, and it went in about 12 feet that way, and 12 feet that way from one entrance. And our, our blokes were living in there, and they had the mortars out on the little bit of ground. It was pretty good posse for mortars, and I think they probably had two guns there. And I, I went up before daylight to uh, give them some ranges. <coughs> and uh, uh, when, when it was daylight, I sneaked out of this bloody uh, tunnel thing and uh, I climbed up uh, very carefully and I was lying there with my instrument to, Range finding is a tube thing about that wide, and you look in here and the view pieces are placed out like. And uh, I'm looking at the front there, and uh, in the enemy area, there was a, a bit of a building. You could see part of a, a back wall and a, and a bit of a side wall, and there was no roof, and you, that was all you could see. And I'm sort of just lying there looking at it and uh, I saw a flash on the wall I saw, and I knew that was a, a gun flash and, and I said to the sergeant that place you call the uh, schoolroom I said I've just seen a flash in it There'd be a mortar. 
And he ranged up in a bloody big hurry. I gave him the range. While he was lining up on the target, I, was, I took the range to it and gave it to him. <coughs> and uh, he blazed away at it. No, that, 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 that was... It wasn't in the, in the cave area. It was back with this 4.2 mortar. And I, and I didn't have the job to do, so I was just playing idly looking through the bloody... Uh, Rangefinders were very good field glasses, and I was looking at the enemy, and then I saw this flash, and I yelled out to the sergeant, um, Jim Mather, he was a South Island bloke from Timaru or Omaru or somewhere, and he, uh, good bloke, a uh, good mortarman, and I yelled out, the, the uh, schoolroom, <coughs> and, and so he was, moving the gun onto it, and I took the range and I gave him to him, and he fired, and he, he went up 50 for the second shot, and the next one, the third one, he, he, he came back 25, so it was virtually on the, uh, virtually uh, on the original range that I'd given him, and a bomb went in into this bloody classroom thing and smoke came up. We knew that we'd been on target, which mortar bombs don't land pinpoint accuracy. Uh, they land in a... Uh, about two, uh, 100 feet wide, 100 yards wide by about 200 yards uh, at about 1,500 metres. And uh, bombs might... You might be ta uh, targeted there, but your bomb might start landing there, and then they, they just drop around almost randomly. And uh, anyway, uh, to get a, a direct hit was pretty good. That night, we got a, a message from a POM major. <coughs> he said, how the bloody hell did you blacks that only just arrived in the bloody area cut onto that bloody mortar? He said, I've been up in an OP. And he said, I've been, they've been sniping at me with their bloody mortar, he said, for a fortnight, making my life absolutely miserable. And you buggers, in the first bloody day you're there, you bloody well get on there and clean you up. We said, yeah, rather efficiently too. <laughs> Four-inch mortar bomb is bloody useful. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. And, uh, 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 but when, when we got to this bloody tunnel, and uh, I'd gone up to them, and, and I, I sneaked up at daylight to take ranges, and, and I hadn't been there very long, and I'd been very careful, I thought, that I, um, I didn't uh, catch any glint of the rising sun to, to give my way a position. <clears throat> and I heard pop, 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 pop. I thought, oh, shit, more. And I slid down. Ran and I just got inside the bloody door of the uh, tunnel, and the sergeant was squatting down there. He had a bloody container full of bully beef and biscuits, and he was stirring it up. And this bracket of bloody mortar bombs landed on our roof. We had about 20 feet of soil above us, but it was sandy soil, and it filled the bloody uh, two tunnels with, with dust, incredible dust, and, uh, <coughs> and 
and uh, an incredible amount of it went into the stew. We ate it. <laughs> and told us that, yeah, I'm piss poor. <laughs> this would have been a good stew if we'd had a decent cook. <laughs> but he was a grizzly bass. Oh, and he was worse. When I dived in, <clears throat> I'd grabbed a bloody uh, coat and slung him up at the door because we had light in there and uh, didn't want... It didn't, the entrance didn't face the enemy, but it didn't want to have any bloody thing. And I, I threw this bloody greatcoat up over the door uh, entrance. There was some, something to, to arrest. And the bloody mortar bomb landed outside. <laughs> and a lot of shrapnel came through. Didn't hit any of us. But it riddled the coat, which happened to be the sergeant's. <laughs> and... <laughs> he was very, very bloody upset about it. Very upset. And of course, if he'd known it was me, he seemed to have a bloody uh, <clears throat> down on me. When we attacked Orsonia, the next morning the, the, the uh, adjutant Ray Board he came along to, I was talking to uh, one of the B Company boys that had done the attack, and uh, the adjutant said, uh, Terry Fitzgerald didn't come back last night with you blokes. Anyone know what happened to him? And one of the blokes said, well, we were going forward there, we came under fire, and Terry went down, and we went over to him, and our boss said, uh, Leave him. There'll be stretcher bearers coming. That we've got a we've got a job to do. And he said so. We had to go forward, and left him. And board being board, he said, "Well, God damn it all!" He said, "I've got a right to this <coughs> bloody w w woman and, uh, and tell her that her son is missing, and you bloggers don't know any bloody thing about it." I said, "We were told that we had a bloody job to do, and it wasn't bloody stretcher bearing or." putting on dressings, and uh, board was a bit difficult about it. And board was still ra rattling on about it. And the padre, Judson, his father was a VC. And uh, Judson, he said quietly, I'll go out and have a look for him. And someone said, what now? And he said, well, I've got a better chance of seeing him in daylight. And Terry Fitzgerald belonged to a family that had lived about three or four hundred metres away from a place in Frankton. And the mother, the father, he had three sons and a girl, and he, I think he got the flu in about 1919 and 18, and he died. And the, the widow was bringing up these, and she was having a bloody tough time of it in the early 20s. And we had a cow, and so we were uh, giving them some milk. And, uh, <coughs> uh, and, and, and one of the boys, uh, he was a paper boy with us, and, and uh, some of us paper boys had 22 rifles, and we used to go out shooting rabbits out around Rotokauri or an up. Uh, Houchins, not Houchins Road, uh, road like that out to Wattawatta Road, about just past the golf links there. And 
It was pretty good. And, and, and we, we went out regularly uh, with uh, Colin Fitzgerald and I, and there were three other blokes, and we had a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, anyway, I, I'd, I'd had a couple of years of this mixing up with this Colin Fitzgerald, and this was his brother that was missing. So when, uh, when the padre said he'd go out, I thought, come you out in daylight on your own? I said, look, I think uh, you'd be better if I went out with you. He said, I'd be glad to have you. And so he said, so we went up to the forward troops and the padre said, I'd like to borrow a Tommy gun with some ammunition and some grenades. I said to him, you know, you're a padre, you're not supposed to bloody well be carrying arms. He said, well, the enemy won't know I'm a bloody padre. <laughs> he said, look after us. So I, I borrowed the same stuff, and we went out in broad daylight, two bloody villages on hilltops, and we had to walk down into a hollow where it was dead ground. The enemy couldn't see us when we were down there, but <clears throat> walking down there, I did not enjoy that at all, because it would have been about 500 metres, I suppose, of being in view. And uh, the enemy were probably wondering, what the bloody hell are those jokes doing? Where are they going? Well, we'll hang on a minute and we'll find out. Anyway, we got down to the dead ground. <clears throat> Oh, and a bit of mortar came over and so we hit, hit, hit the deck. And we were waiting for it to uh, ease up. And we spotted a, uh, a black small pack. I went over to it and it had been turned inside out. But uh, there was a wallet in it. didn't have a name in it. It was a leather wallet from Egypt, and in it was uh, about 10 or 12 piastres of Egyptian money, which we couldn't, we weren't in an area where we, Italy was disorganised, you couldn't bloody well just walk in there off the street and do a bloody bank or change the money. Anyway, I had it, <coughs> and uh, about a year later when this Grizzly sergeant was going back to Egypt uh, on a tour of duty, as it was called. I said, oh, hang on. Take this Egyptian money with you and have a drink of us. So I didn't harbour any bloody grizzles. Bob Carlyle, that was his name. He was an Auckland black. Yeah, we were fortunate. While we were still in the dip, we found the bloke and he was dead. And he'd been killed instantly. Uh, Gordon Briggs was in the Bren gun section of 23rd Battalion. Around Castle Frentano and Orzonia, the carriers would go out on patrol one vehicle at a time with no radios. It could be dangerous work. I would go out on patrols. Not a lot of activity, but they'd take us off the carriers and fill in gaps in the front line. Well, we did. We got shot out. We got shot out coming back, uh, and the shell that was trying to get us got a truck that was backing out of a, a, a place. 
and we stopped and picked the poor driver up and put him on the canopy of the brink carrier and they took him up to the MDS and I elected to, I took my Tommy gun out and elected to walk back and consequently when my carrier got back to headquarters all over the engine cowl was the blood from this person that had been wounded. He died actually. And everyone thought it was me who had bought it because I come wandering down the road later on and here I was. <laughs> well up on that ridge at Olsonia is the first time I was detailed to dig a grave um, and we buried uh, one of the guys there and uh, later on the next night they found that we'd buried two not one. Is that right? Mm. It was just a heap of batteries, <coughs> dark and so on and uh, they'd been carrying a stretcher between them and a shell had landed between them and uh, uh, quite a mess yes. but that's the first time and uh, I was wanting to dig it deeper and no, no, I got told off, no, you don't dig it down deep because they're going to be recovered, you That's see, right. later on. But the thing is there, when we, after uh, Sonia, after we come out of Sonia and come back and it snowed, and it snowed for about a week there, or it might have been longer, yeah, yeah. and then they said we were going to make another attack. So we went right around, I don't know whether you were with us, but we went right around to the to the right there, uh, below the big hill. Big yeah, snow. yeah. And we were in, in there, and we had to go through minefield, went through minefield, a couple of jokes got uh, foot blown off, uh, because they, they had tracks for us to go through, and these jokes took a shortcut, of course, which, you know, what some of them were like. And yeah. They... So, anyway, and that's where we had Captain Hart, and he, he dug the tank in there, and just this gun sticking up, right covering the road, and he said he'd stay there because they always took the tanks back, you know. No, and he stayed there because at night time you got to have infantry to cover the because the tanks useless in the dark. It's not much bloody better in the daytime sometimes. <laughs> anyway, so we looked after Captain Hart, and he looked after us, and then that night when they come in. Uh, with the frame thrower and that, and there was a big sort of a house right on the road, and we'd been in there, and we moved back out into slip trenches. And there, oh gee, this tank, and it was about a 80, 100 yards. Whoop, whoop, and of course, they stuck all this armour down. You should have seen this paddock next morning. And Jerry put an attack in, and our artillery got him. Christ, there was packs laying there and all sorts. They, they got them all out, you know, dead and that. And, and so we got back over the hill, over the thing, with the thing there. And so, oh, they were, they'd be, wouldn't be here to the corner of the road, all these jerrys. And they was, you could hear them bloody carrying on, you know, crying out and all that. And that bloody artillery was chewing them up, we were over the bank. And before that, uh, Captain Hart, he, he knocked about three tanks out there, yeah. And the frame thrower crackling burning there for about three or four days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, there's two tanks in the frame thrower and uh, we, we, we gave them to Captain Hart anyway. <laughs>
us fellas, we thought the sun shone out of him, eh? And he, he was all that captain, you know, in 1928. Yeah. Uh, just before Christmas there, we were in a great big, it looked, looked like a haystack. But it wasn't a haystack, it was a shed. But it, all, all the roof was all lined with a, was a hay, like a haystack. And we were inside, it was nice and cosy in there too. Were you there, Tom? <laughs> 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 and oh, and it looked like the whole whole, whole battalion was in there. It was such, yeah. a, such a big place, you know. Yeah. And here we were all bunked in there. The New Zealand division was to experience its first Christmas and New Year in Italy while in the Orsania battle lines. Men of the battalion were withdrawn in rotations to enjoy some Christmas cheer before returning to their snowy foxholes and casses on the front line. But we had Christmas up there. Yeah, we had Christmas, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh, one thing it. I forgot about there. When I, we were... I think we crossed the Sangro. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. I've got a date that's, yeah, that's stuck right. in forgot my, about Christmas. my memory, the 28th of November. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's was right. The cross, right. When we crossed the Sangro. 28th and 29th. And, and we had Christmas after Orsonia. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Funny, at that stage, um, uh, we went back, right back down to the river. Did you? Yeah. Oh, wouldn't it? And, and I was detailed to go with a party in a truck to try and get some, this is before Christmas, yeah. to try and get some uh, some goodies, oh. uh, you know, for Christmas. A 1,500-weight truck, and there was about four of us in it, and a couple of officers in front. Oh, oh they, had the and, uh, they had the bridge over there. And so what they had to barter with was salt. And they had two or three sandbags full of salt. Um, and so we went back Further across back. the... They had the bridge up then, of course, the yeah. Valley Bridge. And we... It seemed with little villages all over the yeah, show. Yeah, that's right. and nearly always on a hill. Yeah. Um, Medieval-type sort of things. And uh, anyhow, um, it became known when around these villages that we had salt, and it was quite amazing. I think they hadn't been able to get salt for quite some time. And of course, we were wanting to buy chooks and eggs, or anything we could get like that. Um, and uh, so the women would come running, these Italian women, with their apron held out and, and full of eggs, and perhaps a chook under one arm and so on. <laughs> And uh, I've forgotten just what the uh, the legal tender was um, for so many eggs with a cup full of or a mug full of salt, <laughs> and they went off as happy as Larry. And, and at one stage we bought um, a, a young beast, a yearling, uh, their bullocks, a pure white, beautiful cattle. We've got them out here now. Um, sure. And we load, and of course they almost live with the families. So we loaded this thing alive uh, into the back, <laughs> back of the ute, <laughs> heaved it up, and uh, and drove back to camp. What became of it? It would have been slaughtered. And certainly the ordinary troops never saw any of it, <laughs> no, and, and and we never saw any of the eggs <laughs> or anything else. I think the officers' mess did pretty well that night, but uh, <laughs> I remember we had tin turkey. Because <laughs> all our food came out of tins, 
And we never carried, uh, the only thing we ever carried to eat with was a spoon. Cause, <laughs> That's you know, right. Didn't hurt anything you, else. You, you, no, nothing it, nothing it, else was no, good anything no, else. No, you didn't need anything no. else. You could eat it all with a spoon. We uh, could pull back the pummy jug is supposed to relieve us at nine o'clock. And my platoon officer said to me, you've been a bushman, you know your way around. He said, I'm going to take most of the boys out and go back to a black house and we're going to have our Christmas dinner there and then go back into the line again. So this Pommy outfit, that they never turned up till 11 o'clock and for some reason or other he wanted these men right dressed. I don't know why, it was bloody dark. And I went and tapped him on my shoulder. I said, you come with me, sure, I'll show you our positions and you can do your right dressing after I get my men out. Well, what I can remember that we had, uh, usually had pork and peas and spuds, and they, were, and they usually were plumbed up. We had a, um, at that stage, we had a hell of a good cook with the company. Before then, uh, we had some bloody terrible cooks. We went back, had a Christmas dinner, then walked back into the line again, and closer to this bloody town called Asogna. And we took over Jerry's lines, and there was a, it had been a quarry, and there was a cave in it, and I was on the top of that, up on the side, and the rest of the, the rest of the platoon was over that way, and I was in a Jerry slip trench, and I'm sitting there this night in the moonlight, on my own, and I looked, and it was cold as hell, and the wind blowing, and I'd sit up and watch the country, and then I'd get down underneath this place here, and I'm sitting there, and there was just two, just like two heads coming. And I reached out and I grabbed a hand grenade and I was just going to pull the pin out of it. And the way I shifted, there was two bits of dirt sitting on this log in front of me. And it just looked like two heads. And so and I'm sitting there the next night and the wind's still blowing and still as cold as blazes. And I could hear this noise, just like a man walking in the grass. And I thought, what the hell can I do? And I thought, well, I'll stand up and the bugger will fire at me, but he won't hit me. So I stood up and sat down. And then I stood up again and a bit longer. And there was a tree branch blowing in the wind and it was coming down like that. And as it come down, hit the ground and it went up this way and then come back again. And there was this water <laughs> with two men, a man walking. Because if, if I had a mate with me, we could have talked about it. The Huns never put one man on his own. There was always three or four of them together. Gordon Briggs recalls how his good mate Ben Hoban was wounded at Orzonia. Yeah, ben was with me right through. We went over together. And I was actually responsible for him being wounded. This was on Orzonia. And I was out in listening post with two other blokes. And our orders were... Uh, if we had any activity, uh, one of us to go back to the company headquarters. And in front of it, on the maps, our maps, each area was squared off and there was one name given to that area and you had to just use that one name and a stonk would come over into that area. And uh, my two sergeants who were with me out in their listening post 
they were arguing about what to do, whether we, we have a go at the, the jerrys. We could see the, the sparks coming off their picks. They were laying mines on the road. We could see the spark. And these two blokes, who were old digs, and they were fourth, fourth, uh, fourth reinforcement, both sergeants, and they were arguing. And I'm thinking, there, what sort of a bloody war is this? These two silly buggers arguing about what to do. And Collett wanted to have a go. I can't think of the other chap's name. And in the end, they decided to send me back and call for that stonk. And we had idea go out there, and they were going to pull back. And the stonk come over, and there were two shorts, and one got Ben in the back. No, just a wee piece in the back, right in the middle of the back. He was laying face down. When I came, when we come back in, in, in daylight, we come back before dawn. Because um, we had, we went back out again after the thing, and we had to go at them then. So they both got their own way. I had a bring gun, and I gave our position away because the magazine I fired had traces in it. So that gave our position away, we had to up and off. Uh, Before we went into Sonia, we were in a house there. Mm -hmm. And we always used to look around, and because the Otis used to put the eggs down, they used to sort of put the, put the eggs down and... Yeah. Uh, Sort of preserved, pre preserved, yeah, preserved eggs, and we knew this, and of course we're always hunting for these bloody eggs, <laughs> and you'd find them buried in, or under the house or <laughs> up in the ceiling. Yeah, all <laughs> <laughs> oh, place then, and uh, and and then the guys uh, digging up bottles of wine, yeah, and even the great big bottles, uh, you know, that big. Yeah. I suppose they would have held, oh, crikey, you know, perhaps 20 litres or more. <laughs> and a long neck on them. Um, well, a big neck, but, is, you know, four that, inches across. But that was that red rosso. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, purple death. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yes, and, and chaps, the Itais used to hide this stuff, you see, yeah. they'd dig up and bury it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Kiwis became yeah. <laughs> you could just about smell pretty, out. pretty expert. And, uh, you know, Christmas time we were just dished up and you sat in the snow and, yeah, and right. ate, ate out of your nest then. You just lined uh, up and yeah. <laughs> lined up and, yeah. and the cooks and yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah, no ceremony. No ceremony. No. But uh, then after after that we came back and it snowed. And it yeah. snowed, snowed, and it snowed, snowed, and it snowed. It was there that we struck snow for the first time. And we didn't know, being blokes drawn largely from the Auckland province, none of us had ever seen snow falling. And it came on on New Year's Eve, and it dropped ever so gently. And it dropped and dropped. And there was 12 inches of it. And uh, I got frozen feet. So uh, did I. And uh, wet. 
and we're living in bivvies, and the snow would come down, and you'd wake up at the oh, if you wake up sometimes at night, the bivvy would be all caved in, and and uh, we had our mortars in the pits, and around the mortars we had a, a heap of ammunition dug into a bank there, and another one there, and there, so that a shell wouldn't set the lot off. This bloody snow came in, so we got under cover, and when we went out after about four hours, where was our bloody mortar? We couldn't find the thing for a while. The pit was completely covered, and the ammunition was, and I was going running around with a bloody broom handle, uh, probing like a, a gum digger, and uh, we recovered. And there wasn't a shot fired for four hours uh, by either side. The uh, cold had frozen the uh, uh, recalling systems on the artillery. It had frozen the oil on the machine guns and our rifles, we couldn't work the bolts of them, they just froze. They overcame that later by putting a bit of antifreeze in the oil that we lubricated these things with. So uh, that was that. Uh, and. We had a bloke, I was visiting a B Company bloke, and uh, this chap, I think of his name, he, uh, he came in and uh, he said to his mates, oh, you can have my fountain pen, you can have my watch, you can have my writing compound. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, oh, I'm going out on patrol shortly. He said, and I won't be back. I said, oh, bloody bullshit. Nah. Anyway, they, he insisted they hand, hang, um, give them the, this, uh, that they retain this stuff he'd distributed. He went out on the, on the <coughs> patrol about an hour and a half. Two hours later, he came back, rushed in. Where's my gear, you pack of thieving bastards? And he collected it all up, and there wasn't room in the house for these blokes, so they had to go outside, and they had uh, these slit trenches out there. It hadn't snowed at this stage, but it was starting. So he lay down in his slit trench with his blankets, and the snow was sort of keeping him awake, so he got a couple of sticks, and he would put them across the slit trench, and we had uh, gas capes, they were sort of an oil, silk sort of a material. It was quite a good uh, uh, raincoat, really. And he put it across the top of the... And uh, whatever mist and rain was falling, he went off to sleep. And the snow came along and it falled so quietly, it fell down there. And he suffocated didn't know what was happening. When I went back 50 years later, the, the first grave I saw of a bloke I knew was Cyril Rogers. Hmm. He was a married man with uh, two kids at least, and he had been in action in Greece, in Rosade, 41, and through the uh, most of the... the uh, Alamein to Tunisia show. So he'd been around and uh, there he was.
casualty. So Rogers, uh, good blood, <laughs> case black. But um, I remember the uh, our artillery um, put a berth because the whole country was covered in in uh, snow. Yeah. So um, and our twenty five pounders were <laughs> were fantastic, absolutely, absolutely. They saved our bacon again and again, um, and. Uh, they fired uh, in the, into the snow. They uh, they spelt out on the side of the mountain. It was all covered in snow. Happy Christmas, Fritz, yeah. with snow with shell bursts <laughs> in the snow. That's how accurate they could get. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a photo somewhere of it. Um, yeah, yeah, you know. You think of the cost of all that sort of thing. Right. We were there when uh, it was New Year's Eve and the snow, and the Germans didn't celebrate Christmas very much, but they went to town the New Year, and we could hear them singing uh, Silent Night, and we joined them, not as well as them, uh, and. Uh, and uh, they they carried on with quite a concert, and someone had spoiled sport an hour. It it said, uh, well, when they stop for a break, we'll man these guns and give them assholes, and we sort of figured out roughly where they were, and uh, so we put put down a stonk, and uh, we got abused by the rest of the battalion. You dark useless bastards! We were enjoying that concert, and you. <laughs> week after the New Year, uh, we went back to Castletano for a rest there and there was snow, snow on the ground that one night there. We were in the, lucky we were in the building, but some in the, out in the slit trench of the big pup tents, they, some of them got snowed down, they didn't hardly knew where they were, they were under the snow or whatever. Oh, in the house with, that we occupied, that was were so damaged. I think we occupied it because there was a great big barrel, it would have been about 150, 200 gallons I suppose, and it had some wine in it, it wasn't bad. So news was passed around and the blokes were arriving to get some for their platoons, which was fair enough. And a fellow named Gillespie, was a sergeant, he came along to get some <coughs> And the barrel was getting a bit low, and I was kneeling down uh, where the spigot was, and he was tipping, tipping the barrel. And he was saying to me, you know, this was my job in Sippy Street. He said, I worked for a brewery in Wellington. And the next minute the bloody barrel moved off its cradle and, and it tilted down on me, and I'm nearly bloody well flattened on the floor. And I'm telling God all about it and what a useless bloody bloke <laughs> from a brewery was. Anyway, he got off with his grog all right and another bloke turned up and he was getting dregs there but, but he had a, had a glass jar. They had a, a, a jar, it was about 25 litre thing and um, <clears throat> he got, got it filled and he walked back into battalion headquarters and he was walking down a passageway with it on his shoulder. Someone hit his elbow and the bloody thing went over backwards and broke, of course. 
and the colonel came along at that stage. The colonel used to look at these sort of things and just go on and pretend he didn't see them, I think. And uh, uh, so we shared things when we when we got them. So we were there for about a week. We were in a house there, but we had to stand guards. So you could hear the Germans just over the line. Uh, we had a listening post out, uh, which uh, which we had to man at night time, and you'd come back again in the daytime. And we were all in, all, we had a house that we used to go to night time, but in the daytime we were in slip trenches, mm -hmm. cold, wet. Very wet, yeah. And uh, that's, that's about the time when uh, the order came through that we were leaving that the area there and we were taken over by the Indians. I was standing guard there night time and, and uh, all of a sudden I feel somebody feel my leg. A bloody Indian in fearing for my spats, you know, to make sure he said, hello Kiwi. <laughs> and so they, they relieved us and uh, we went back to, went back to Castle Fontano. Yeah, they, uh Reckon we'd done had enough there, and we hadn't finished it. We'd shifted him back, but uh, we uh, we hadn't really finished it. So I suppose somebody or poles probably uh, would have come in after us. So uh, that was the end of the campaign on the uh, Adriatic side. Um, and the Canadians, we were part of the 8th Army there, which was a real conglomerate of, of troops. Free French, Canadians, Indians, lots of Indians, uh, Kiwis, at one time the Aussies had been in it in, in the desert, uh, British, Scots, Polish, you name it, all gooms, they were French Moroccans, um, and they were good guys to keep well away from. Um, so that was the end of it. So we came back down sort of towards the Sangro River. I can't remember who relieved us up there. It might have been the Canadians, I'm not sure. Anyhow, um, and the next move of course was over to Casino. The next episode of Courage and Valour is entitled Casino Part 1. It'll cover the second division of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force moving across to the western side of Italy to join the US-led Fifth Army at the Germans' most formidable strongpoint at Casino. In this episode, you've heard from Colin Murray, Harry Hopping, Galvin Garmansway, Fred Blank, Maury Hodgson, Ted Bluey-Homewood, Jack Cummins, Pat Green, Gordon Briggs and Norm Harris. Grateful acknowledgements to all those who have taken part in the series and to the Tiawa Mutu branch of the Royal New Zealand Returned and Services Association for their support. The recordings for this episode were written, edited and produced by Dave Homewood. <laughs>